if I were to ask you this question, where does the Christmas story begin if you were to look for it in Scripture? Where does the Christmas story begin? If you talk to people just in general about the Christmas story, they often will run to that eminent theologian, that very prominent 20th century theologian, Linus Van Pelt. <laughs> Did you know that was Linus's last name? Linus and Lucy Van Pelt from Charlie Brown Christmas. Linus stands up center stage, asks for the spotlight, and there he begins. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Now, granted, I'm not as cute as Linus, and it loses something not standing here with a blanket and a thumb. But if we ask, where does the Christmas story begin? Many would run to where Linus ran to. Right there, the story of the testimony of the shepherds. Or perhaps we'd look in Luke chapter 2. It was in those days that the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And we read about the account. It might be at the, at the advent, the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, the announcement to Mary, maybe somewhere in there. But I have to say, to truly understand the Christmas story, we need to realize that the story has always been. For the promise has always been given, as I prayed earlier, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. That this is is God's divine and wonderful providence and plan for us. And we even see it as it unfolds in Scripture before us. If we go back to the very beginning, matter of fact, those are the words, aren't they? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It speaks about the Spirit of the Lord hovering over the face of the earth. It, we hear the, the discussion within the divine eternal trinity, let us make man in our image. And, and we see in the account of the creation of the world, the promise of a Savior. Genesis chapter 1, we see the, uh, the seven days of creation, six days plus the day of rest. Chapter 2, uh, we see that it zooms in on, on that day in which man and woman were created Adam and Eve were created. Genesis chapter 3, just three chapters in, just barely making a dent in the 66 books of of God's Word. Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve choosing to rebel against God. We see the fall. We see the curse. For they chose in knowledge to rebel against God. Then Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in an unlikely, unlikely place, God speaks to the serpent the serpent that beguiled Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, enmity, that will antagonism, there'll be, there'll be this struggle and strife. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We refer to this theologically as the proto-euangelion. The proto-evangelism, the first evangelism, the first discussion of the promise of a solution, the cure, the redemption that would come as death has entered the world. It's a curse upon Satan, and this, this is a curse of conflict that would ultimately be resolved when the seed of the woman, the one who would be born of woman, we're going to read those very words in a moment, one born of woman would come to destroy Satan, bruising, crushing, destroying him, Even when his heel is bruised, the serpent would be crushed, his head. A man would be born. A man from woman would be born to take back from Satan. Take back and redeem those that have been held captive, that are loved eternally by God. 
And we see one other thing happen there. It's a remarkable thing in Genesis chapter 3. It, it often passes unnoticed because there's, there's quite a lot of excitement going on. I mean, there's talking serpents and there's, there's all sorts of excitement going on there. The voice of God coming and booming in the garden. Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? And then we see them exiled from the garden and we even see uh, the flaming sword positioned there to keep them from returning to the garden. There's a lot of, of excitement, a lot of, of flash that's going on there. But right in the midst of that, verse 21 It's a simple statement of care. Verse 21 of Genesis 3, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Remember, they were trying to cover themselves in the fig leaves. They were trying to to cover up their shame, and they couldn't do it. And it was God that covered their shame. It was God that gave them clothing. He cared for them. And we have to ask, how did he care for them? He killed an animal. That day Adam did not die. That day Eve did not die. That day one died for them. They would ultimately die. But that day there was a substitute. That day there was one who gave his life. God slaughtered an animal and took the skin and put it on Adam and on Eve. But there is this promise, the promise of one who would come and do that perfectly, that perfect sacrifice, that perfect substitute for us, the one who would come. And the question is, who is this man? Who is the seed of this woman? Adam and Eve, they named their firstborn child Cain, meaning God has given us the man. I I, I do believe that the choice of that name was a man has been promised, a man has been given. Cain has to be that man that Adam and Eve were expecting it. They were looking forward to it, but they did not get it. Cain was not the man. Cain was not the Savior. Genesis chapter 4, we don't find a Savior, we find a murderer. And we're going to talk a little bit tomorrow tomorrow night on and Christmas Eve as we look at Hebrews chapter 1 talking about the unfolding of God's plan as He spoke through prophets, as He spoke in anticipation of Jesus and then speaking perfectly in Jesus. But we need to see that when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son. He sent the man. Follow with me here. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. said, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. I told you, you'd hear those words again. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for this, your word. Thank you for your perfect timing, your undying love, your unswerving providence, Lord, your unfailing mission to redeem to yourselves a people that we would be called your children. Oh, how great is your love. May we hear this passage of Scripture. May it resound as we hear the love of God through Jesus Christ in your word today. For we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. This particular phrase, I've I've always found it captivating. In the fullness of time. When time had been filled up when it was right. I think about all those things for which we wait, not silly jokes that we wait 30 seconds for. I think about walking into my grandmother's house when we gather together at Christmas time, and you walk in, and I know you can you can put uh, the same type of, of, of memory and thought behind this and may even happen to you in the days to come. 
But I can remember walking into my grandmother's house and just being hit with the smells. Oh my goodness, the wonderful fresh vegetables and all that had been cooked, the the wonderful Christmas meal that had been prepared for me and for my cousins. And I can remember having to wait. It's not ready yet. It, it, It sure smells ready. I'm hungry now. I need it now. Why is it not ready? Well, it's not time. The fullness of time had not come. It had not been filled up. And I think, well, that's just horrible planning on your part. (laughs) I don't think I said it so eloquently as a spoiled little kid. I probably stomped my feet and said, I want it now. When the fullness of time had come, when, when, when it was ready, when it was perfect, when the food was at its most delicious, she fed us. John Calvin talks about this particular passage. When he says, when the fullness of time had come, he says this, the season is the most fit and that mode of acting is the most proper which the providence of God directs. The season is most fit. It's the best time and it's the best way when it's according to the providence of God. He goes on to say, at what time it was expedient that the Son of God should be revealed to the world, it belonged to God alone to judge and determine. It's saying, so many had been saying, I am ready for a Savior now. But it was according to the plan and the timing of God. He goes on to say, this consideration ought to restrain all curiosity. Let no man presume to be dissatisfied with the purposes of God. Let no man raise a dispute why he doesn't act sooner. That's his very eloquent, translated way of saying, how dare we question God's timing? When we say, why, O oh Lord, are my prayers not answered the way I want today? Today, why must I wait? How long, O oh Lord, we cry out with the psalmist. Like I said, we're going to look at Hebrews 1 tomorrow night. But we need to understand that when it talks about the fullness of time, it talks about the fullness of time, we have to ask ourselves, why is it that we had to wait for, okay, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, first, all the way through to Malachi, right? We had to get all the way here before we see Jesus. I tell you, it would have made my seminary life so much easier if Genesis 4 had been the stable and Genesis 5 would be His return. Uh, I, I like that. But instead, we wait for the timing of God. But we need to know this, that when it speaks about the fullness of time, I believe in in greatest measure it's speaking about the fullness of understanding of our need. Rebellion in the garden, it needed redemption. Rebellion in the garden needed forgiveness. But how great a lesson was learned to allow time to unfold as it did until the time when Paul is speaking to the Galatians about those who are trying to accomplish salvation in ways other than trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone for our salvation. Looking back at all the trouble, all the heresy, all the wickedness of, 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 of the years past, We think about the fullness of understanding that came. How great a lesson is learned when we see the wickedness that flowed from the rebellion of the garden. We don't see Jesus coming in Genesis 4. We begin the unfolding of the wickedness and treachery of man, murder and adultery, lying, child sacrifice, cannibalism, idolatry, all of these things. 
and all these things being sins that our Savior has come to forgive. When we look at this word particularly, this word fullness, the fullness of time, it's a Greek word, a pleroma. Uh, the, the Greek word really has the connotations of a ship, a ship that is full of sailors and those who would be rowing, uh, the merchandise that would be being carried, the freight and all that was necessary, the supplies that were, were laden on the craft there, the soldiers that would be transporting. It was talking about when the fullness of time, when the fullness of this ship came into port. He said all of this had a purpose. All of this had value. All of this was necessary. We needed to understand how much we need a Savior. There was a, an English reformer, John Bradford. He lived 1510, 1555. Uh, he was ultimately uh, martyred under Bloody Mary, Mary Tudor. He is the one who's credited with a phrase that we, many of us have heard. He was watching uh, a, a criminal, a criminal who's being led to execution uh, for thief, uh, for stealing, for, uh, for, for murder, for other crimes. And he was the one that watched this poor criminal as people were booing and hissing and throwing things for executions that they were quite public. Executions in that day uh, were opportunities for everybody to gather around and to show their scorn for the condemned. But it was this man of God, John Bradford, exclaimed in the hearing of those around him, he said, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. There but for the grace of God go I saying that it were not for God being at work in my life, I am capable of every form of wickedness. He knew that the same evil principles were in his own heart, these principles that had brought this criminal to a shameful end. But when we look at a passage like this, we need to, we need to, to, to pause and to reflect. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. When the fullness of time, a fullness of understanding, the, the, the necessary understanding of we are sinners and we need Christ. And, and there is no one who has ever needed Christ more than me. But we too often tend to downplay our sins. We downplay our sins and amplify the sins of others. You see, here's the truth as I, as I see it. Other people lie. I stretch the truth. Other people are, are given to anger, to outburst, to having a, a vicious temper. Why? I'm just passionate about what I believe. Others gossip. Others slander each other. I, well, I just need to share the truth with you in love. You see, we tend to, to look at our, our own sins and think they're not that bad. But our sins, our sins are worthy of death and condemnation. Our sins are where we fail to obey the revealed will of God. Our sins are where we make a choice. Do I follow God or do I follow what I want? And I don't give one whit whether it is murdering somebody or whispering gossip under your breath. In both cases, we are choosing our will over God's. And this deserves death. And we need to have the fullness of understanding of that. We need to fully understand that we need Jesus. So in the fullness of time, the fullness, when this ship comes in, I need to cry out with Paul, I thank you, Lord God, that the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. 
And as far as I'm concerned, I'm the worst one there is. Paul says, the more I get to know God, the more I see how wretched and sinful I am. This is how this, this, this passage of Scripture unfolds. It begins by saying, it, it is in the fullness of time. And what did God do? There has to be a solution here. We have to know the level of our desperation and how great is our need, but we need to know that God has accomplished the salvation that we need. He has accomplished it, and He has accomplished it through Christ. And that's where this passage runs. Paul, who has been talking to the Galatians, who have been saying, oh, you must do X, Y, and Z in order to be saved. You have to be baptized. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow these requirements of the law. And then and only then may you be saved. And he asks the question, he says, are you really trying to perfect in the flesh that which was begun in the Spirit? He goes on to say, if anybody is telling you that, if anybody's telling you that you've got to do your way into the love of God, so that's a lie. Not only is it a lie, it's a damnable lie. As one theologian said, It's from the pit of hell, and it smells like smoke and sulfur. What Paul says here, when the fullness of time was right, when it had come, God sent Jesus. Plain and simple. God sent His Son. What do we see here? He sent Christ. says, His Son, born of woman. So right there, he points to the the incredibly unique nature of Jesus Christ. Son of God and Son of woman. Well, some theologians have said, why doesn't he launch into a discussion of the virgin birth? Well, he says the son of woman. He doesn't speak of the son of man, son of man and woman. He speaks about the son of a woman. The virgin birth, uh, deliberately, uh, on point here. But what is even more on point is the juxtaposition of God sending his son, born of a woman, son of God and son of man. We refer to that theologically as the hypostatic union. Throw that away. <laughs> Just, just know if you ever read that, it, it, does, it sounds like something that's going to interfere with your television signal, doesn't it? Hypostatic union, it's, it's talking about the personal union of Jesus' two natures, fully God and fully man. Everything that makes God, God, Jesus is. In our catechism, we said that He is the same in substance, equal in power and glory with God. Everything that makes God, God, He is. Philippians 2 speaks about that. He says, Jesus did not consider equality with God something that He had stolen, something He had to grasp. It's always been His. And He goes so far as to say, I and the Father are one. But also, John writes in his epistle, he says, if anyone would deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, He is of the spirit of the Antichrist. That Jesus had to be born a man. Hebrews says that we have a Savior who is like us in every way, only without sin. And it is this mysterious joining of divine and human together in the one person of Jesus. This was not a phase-shifting thing where sometimes He was divine and sometimes He was human. That when the time was right, the eternal Son of God took to Himself a human nature and He exists to this day forevermore, one man and two natures. Why is that important? Why is this more than just some theological mutterings and rumblings and ramblings of of ivory tower academics? Well, it's vital. It's essential to our salvation. Jesus had to be man. Why did he have to be a man? Well, because he came to save men and women. He he did not come to, to save angels. He did not come to save animals. He came to save us. And he had to qualify as our substitute. This is why the writer of Hebrews said it's not bulls, it's not goats. These don't save us. Their sacrifice, their shed blood doesn't save us. It's Christ that saves us. 
It's the man who stood in our place. He qualified as our substitute. But there's something else there. He's fully God, so that that substitute would be of infinite value. It would be sufficient for the sins of the world and efficiently applied to all of God's children. One mere man cannot stand in the place of all of the redeemed, but God can. Fully God and fully man joined eternally in the incarnation. And it says he was not only born of woman, but he was born under the law, subjected to the conditions that we are subjected to, having to eat, having to sleep, growing weary, thirsting, and also obeying all the laws that he himself had instituted from all eternity. It would be just like a a slave owner who frees his slaves by taking the chains off of him and putting them on himself. Putting them on himself that his slave might go free. Our, Our Savior took our chains. He took our burdens. He took all the responsibility of the law and he fulfilled it perfectly. So we see Son of God, Son of Man, born under the law. And what do we see? Paul goes on to speak about the wonderful, joyful result of this, that we celebrate this season and always. What does he say? Verse 5, he said, He came to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. We see redemption. Now, redemption is another fancy theological word. And, And we always need to be careful, Christians, that when we grow up in the church, we learn our own vocabulary. We, we kind of come up with our own Christian vernacular. We, we come up with words that we use that people that don't, don't sit in the pews with us, uh, they don't necessarily understand what those mean. doesn't mean we stop using them. Just make sure that we can clearly articulate what they mean. Redemption. What is redemption? Now, I remember when I was a child, uh, when mom would come home from the grocery store, uh, she would bring Q yellow stamps. Any other Q Yellow Stamp collectors out here? Yep, yep, remember them? And there was the Q Yellow Stamp Redemption Center on the Eastern Bypass, or the Southern Bypass, down that way by the bridge over by Norman Bridge Road. And the building's still there, but I remember when it was closing down, and I had collected them for years, and we had two or three drawers full of those books, and I, I just remember going down there, and it was like Christmas in July. I bought a fishing rod. I bought a tackle box. I bought a bike. I mean, I think I got a bicycle out of the whole deal because I had collected so many, but we went to the redemption center. And redemption, the word here means to buy out of exagorazzo, exo, to pull out, exagorazzo, to buy out, to ransom, to pay for. And we think about, as we look throughout the Old Testament, there's so many examples that, that God used to prepare us to understand this. The story of Hosea. Do you remember Hosea? Such a rich, wonderful... It's, it's one of those books that you'd be very tempted to just pass over a short little book, some prophecy and all going on in there, and you think, I just don't know what's happening. But the story of, of Hosea redeeming his wife, going and, and, and redeeming Gomer. Yes, her name was Gomer. But his beautiful wife, the wife whom he loved, he went and purchased her. She was selling herself as a prostitute. And he went and said, I will buy her out of that, that she would be the wife whom I love. We think about Boaz. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer for Ruth, who provided for what she needed, brought her in when she had nothing, bought her out of that old life into this new life. That is what we need to see. That is what has been accomplished. When the time was right, God sent Jesus, His Son, born of Mary, 
qualified to be our substitute, and He did so that we would be redeemed. We who are under the law are redeemed. We've been purchased out of it. Now, Christian, I need you to to, to consider what implications that has on your life now. Paul picks up on this theme in in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 19 and 20, just a portion of the verse, he reminds us all, he says, you need to know that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You've been purchased. You've been bought and paid for. You belong to Jesus. Now, don't consider that slavery. Consider it a wondrous redemption. A joyful purchase out of slavery. And Paul's going to say to something rich and glorious, we are not our own. But we like to think that we are, don't we? We struggle with that ownership of our lives. We sing along with Billy Joel. Billy Joel, 1978. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. I'm not going to sing it. You go ahead with your own life. You leave me alone. And find myself riding down the road, listening to an oldie station. Billy Joel just singing that, you know. Usually goes back to back with only the good die young. And you just shake your head and think, what are folks thinking? But it says, this is my life. This is my life. And Paul says, no, it most certainly is not. If you are a child of God, you belong to Him. And what a glorious thing that is. For what have we been redeemed to? Paul continues, look at it with joy and not with a a grudging observance of saying, well, I was slave to this, now I'm slave to God. It just sounds like a little bit better slavery. Well, that's not the case at all. It says, we have been redeemed, those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption. He said, I'm not calling you to be a slave in my house. I'm calling you to be a son. I'm calling you to be a daughter. I want all the benefits of being a child of God to be yours. Just like the prodigal son returning, about to beg his father to be a servant in his household, and the father rejoices, tackles him, rolls with him in the field, and says, you will come to my house, and you will be my son once again, and we will celebrate this, and all of my household will know. We've been called into adopted to be sons and daughters of God. You see, Paul's using a Roman, a, a Roman notion here, adoption. We, we don't really find these words until we get to Paul in this Roman context. But it speaks about this, that we have been uh, given entrance into a new family. Our previous ties, our previous obligations, they're broken. What happens in the adoption process is, is a legal procedure. It completely terminates our, our social relationship and our legal connection with that which is natural. For we are of our father the devil, Jesus would say. But those ties have been severed. And what we have been made is not a temporary guest, not a servant, but a permanent member of the new family. And once the adoption was complete in those days, Paul draws on this picture. He says that the new son or the new daughter was completely under the, the care and the control of the father. And this was absolute. By the father receiving the child into their household, there's nothing that could ever take that child from him. That we've been adopted as children, whereas we cry, Abba, Father. That dearest and most intimate of terms, not just, you know, dear sir, good afternoon, Mr. Bowman. It would be daddy. Daddy, you are my father. Praise God. 
But beyond that, beyond that, not only are we brought in as heirs, but it says what? That we um, are indeed, it says if we are sons, then God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts that we would cry out, Abba, Father. So Presbyterians hear this. If, if you are adopted, if you are a child of God, if you have been redeemed by the Son of God, you are Spirit-filled. I know. I had to read that twice. I said, wait a minute. We'll change our name to First Church of Holiness and what's happening? Mm-mm. Paul picks up on this theme in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, don't be drunk with wine. Talking to the people who would like to get all, all riled up with, with wine and debauchery there in the, uh, in the Dionysian culture there in, in, in Ephesus. He says, don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. That we would address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That we would sing and make melody to the Lord with our heart. That we would give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that we would submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that we would be filled with the Spirit and that that Spirit would be what comes out of us in all circumstances. And so it's so much more. What he says here is that when the fullness of time has come, God sent Jesus not to take us from slavery to slavery, not to take us from, from, from slavery to even a lesser sonship or daughtership. He goes on to say that we would be an heir, an heir, that inheritance is ours that the Father bequeaths to us glory and honor and all these things for all eternity. And he will repeat this in Romans chapter 8. It says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we're children. And if we're children, then we're heirs. If we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, we suffer with Him, but we're also glorified with Him. This is this wonderful thing. When the fullness of time and the understanding of how depraved and wicked we are, we see Jesus and He redeems us. And God looks upon us and says, not only do I call you my child, but I empower you with my spirit. That all that I call you to do, and for all eternity, what you will be privileged to do will be the welling up of my spirit working in you to the praise and the glory of my name and that your joy would be complete. Is this not an amazing, an amazing passage of Scripture to reflect on in this joyous Christmas season? Amen? Pray with me. Lord, we confess that we so very often fall short of appreciating what the Apostle Paul has to say right here. Help us to understand the wickedness, the depth of our depravity, the wickedness of our sins, and how we indeed, more than anyone we know, need Jesus. That we would pound our chest like the tax collector in the temple and say, Lord, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. I'm the sinner. That we cry out with Paul, praise be to God that the gospel is true and that Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But I praise you, Lord God, that you didn't leave me there and neither did you transfer my slavery from one owner to the next, but that you have bought me and called me your son, that we would rejoice as heirs of your kingdom, that we would stand with our Savior Jesus forever and ever and praise your name. May that be a joy that fills our hearts and our lives this season and always. In Jesus' name, amen.